You know, uh, we're very near the end of a series of messages that we've been going through this summer, the last nine chapters of the book of 2 Kings. Now really, the books of 1 and 2 Kings were really one book. We haven't mentioned this all summer, but older, much older, hundreds of years ago, commentaries who, who wrote about, uh, scholars who wrote about uh, the books of Kings, they thought that maybe the prophet Jeremiah wrote the books of 1 and 2 Kings. Isn't that interesting? But uh, newer scholars believe that, you know, there's too much material in it. Jeremiah would not have written the whole thing. It would have been compiled maybe by Jeremiah, maybe others. They don't know exactly who wrote it. It was written over a long period of time, and it was written in the future. In other words, it was written after all of these events. So uh, the, especially the book of 2 Kings moves towards this climactic crash, which we're going to get the first of today, the first echoes of the crash. And next week, we'll get the full orbed crash. Um, so we've been doing the last nine chapters of the book of 2 Kings. And today, I, I don't know, today and really next week is kind of a summary. So let me set it up like this. I, uh, I had a conversation with someone last week who was telling me that, that it just feels like their life is off track. And when your life is off track, how do you get back? You know, when, when, um, when you've made a mess of things or when you just don't feel connected at all or you've just lost the narrative for uh, your work, your career, you're 47 and you are nowhere near where you thought you were going to be when you were 25. You know, you just, you, you, it's, it's off. You, you're off track. How do you get back? Maybe it's a tweak or maybe it's a dramatic get backing to get back. How, how do you do that? Um, I, I was reminded that that's really what this whole summer has been about. We'll get to that in a minute, but first of all, I want to survey uh, kind of where we've come from and, and where we are today, historically, to set up our reading for today. It's just a short passage. We'll be reading in 2 Kings chapter 24, and we're going to read verses 8 through 17. Um, again, this is the next to the last section, uh, but I'm going to set that up today with a survey, if I can. Uh, this is setting up the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah. So King Jehoiakim is what we're going to read about today. And you can sort of see the flow of the kings that we've talked about this summer up on the wall. Last week we learned that Jehoiakim who was King Josiah's, and uh, you see jo Josiah up there, Je Jehoiakim was King Josiah's second son. And he became king in Judah in 609 B.C. He had been placed on the throne by the Egyptian pharaoh Necho when Necho took his older brother Jehoahaz away in chains. So did you catch that? Jehoahaz was Jehoiakim's, well, I mean, was Josiah's older son, and he assumed the throne on Josiah's death. Josiah had been killed when Judah went out to do battle against Egypt, and Egypt had defeated them, and they'd killed Josiah, and then uh, uh, Israel, Judah, at that point, had become a vassal of Egypt, and they placed Jehoi Jehoahaz on the throne. Uh, Pharaoh got tired of him, removed him from the front throne, replaced him with Jehoiakim. This is made-for-TV stuff. Then Pharaoh Necho 
levied a tax against Judah, which Jehoiakim paid. Now, obviously, Judah's no longer her own boss. At this point, she's Egypt's vassal. And as we said last week, already the end is in sight. Soon, however, Babylon began to move into the region. And we need to pause there for a drum roll or, you know, for, for the uh, background music to swell because uh, Babylon will soon become the biggest superpower the world has known up to this point. Babylon defeated Assyria in 612 BC and had assumed the role of big man on campus. And when Babylon made her move south, Egypt was unable to contain it. In fact, in 605 BC at a place called Karshemish, there'll be a test at the end of today, Necho combined with what was left of the Assyrian army, and who knows how that happened. I guess the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So what was left of the Assyrian army combined with Pharaoh Necho, and they went out at the battle of Karshemish to meet the Babylonian forces with King Nebuchadnezzar at the head of it to stop him. This was one of the ancient world's most famous battles, and Babylon won. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar overthrew Egypt and the remaining forces of Assyria. So Babylon inherited all of Egypt's vassals, which at this point, of course, included Judah, which meant that Jehoiakim is now paying taxes to Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiakim compliantly paid these taxes, of course, for three years. Okay, during this time, Babylon withdrew back to, the Babylonians withdrew back to Babylon, presumably to take care of internal concerns. And Pharaoh Necho took advantage of the absence and he marched north into what's now the, the Gaza Strip area. So, I mean, you can see Judah is clearly just a pawn caught in the crosshairs of the power struggle between these two great kingdoms. Anyway, at about the same time that Egypt began to make noise in the area again, Jehoiakim decided to quit paying taxes to Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps he thought the Babylonians wouldn't notice. Perhaps he thought the Egyptians might intervene to help him. Perhaps he had just run out of resources. Whatever the reasoning, this turned out to be a mistake. The Babylonians did notice. So King Nebuchadnezzar returned to the region. He moved through the Arabian desert. And then he began to make forays into Judah itself, including an attack on Jerusalem. During that process, Jehoiakim died. And the throne was passed to Jehoiakim's 18-year-old son, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim reigned as the king of Judah for about a minute and a half. It was, it was actually three, three months. At which point, King Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem in force. Now remember, Jehoiakim had stopped paying his taxes, but it seems like removing him or having him die was not enough. So Nebuchadnezzar set up a siege against Jerusalem and Jehoiakim surrendered the city. Now this spared Jerusalem from complete destruction, but the Babylonians still came in and ransacked and pillaged the king's palace and parts of the temple. And then they took the young king his family and entourage, plus the leading families of Jerusalem and all of the army and the craftsmen in and around Jerusalem, and they transported them, lock, stock, and barrel, all the way to Babylon, where most of them would live out their lives in exile. And this was 597 B.C. And believe it or not, this is not the bitter end. We'll get to that next week. But this was clearly the point of no, long, of no return. There, there, there were no longer any illusions about the stability of Jerusalem. 
I mean, the idea of God's people living in God's land, worshiping at God's house, that idea was dead. So, that sets us up for 2 Kings 24, 8 through 17. And let's read this section, which is just a brief survey of that same period of history that I just talked about. And let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. 2 Kings 24, beginning of verse 8. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, daughter of Elnathan, and she was from Jerusalem. And here's the summary. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the temple of the Lord from the royal palace and took away all the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple. He carried into exile all Jerusalem, all the officers and fighting men, all the craftsmen and artisans. A total of 10,000, only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the leading men of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and 1,000 craftsmen and artisans. And he made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. And you can see we have come to the end, and next week we'll talk about Zedekiah. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not a good ending. You may be seated. So there is a, a monastery about an hour from here, and over the last uh, many years, maybe 20 years, uh, two or three times a year, I try to go out to the monastery. Sometimes I'll go for a weekend, so they'll, they'll let you come. They have a retreat house, and they'll let you come Thursday through Sunday night. I, I usually will go Thursday and obviously come back Sunday morning. Or they, they will let another group come up Monday through uh, Thursday afternoon. So that's usually the time that I go. And when I go, I go for the purpose of, you know, I don't look at my phone. I don't look at my computer. I go for an un un uninterrupted time of reflection and just deepening my connection with God. And uh, I go usually with kind of one small planning goal. And then I also spend a considerable amount of time praying for Gateway. And, and I pray for you. And I try to pray through Gateway, uh, our list of folks um, by names. So I uh, prayed for most of your, you and your families this week. And it's often a good time for me and sometimes a great time. One of my favorite things about it is uh, there's a monk that I meet with sometimes, an older gentleman, and it's kind of spiritual direction. He likes the fact that I'm a Protestant minister. I like the fact that he's a monk. And then they do the Benedictine daily office hours. So they pray, they, they sing the Psalms and pray and observe silence at 3.30 in the morning for what they call vigils. I sometimes miss that one. And then they do a seven o'clock time that they call lauds. 
And then they do a midday prayer at two o'clock. Again, they're singing psalms. They're sometimes reading New Testament readings and, and they're observing silence. And then they do a 5.30 service they call Vespers and a 7.30 service that they call Compline. And it's just a, it's an awesome rhythm that, that gets you out of the rhythm of Northern Virginia. So this is always an enjoyable time for me. Of all the times that I've been over the years, this was probably, uh, the, not probably, this is the, the toughest time I had. It was, this is struggle. And now some of that was just logistics. They, they, because of COVID, the monks are all older men. So uh, they didn't allow people who are there for the week or for the weekend to observe the hours with them. And uh, then there are other logistical issues. And I just, I, and that in my own spirit, and I could not connect. I, I felt, I felt really disconnected. And it's funny, when you're a little bit disconnected, the way to emphasize that is to get alone and quiet. When there's no interruptions and there's no Netflix and all of a sudden you realize, you know, I thought I was a little bit disconnected. I'm really disconnected. And so I started wondering for myself, how do, you know, what's, up, what's up? How do, I, how do I get back on track? How do I, how do I get connected? I even had, <clears throat> you've probably had one of these times or more if you've been walking with Christ for a while. I had one of those uh, times where I was walking one afternoon and I was trying to pray and it just felt nothing. Uh, it's funny, you know, when you have a relationship with Christ, and I, I'm gonna, I know most of you maybe do, uh, we take for granted this sort of underneath us connection. And when, and when that kind of disappears, you, boy, you really feel its absence. You realize what you had. So I was out walking one day, and honestly, I, I was thinking for a while, do I, even, do I even know how to pray? Have I ever prayed? And honestly, really, have I ever really prayed? I, I just felt lost. So I started wondering, um, how, do you, how do you get back on track? How do you, how do you get reconnected? And I was reminded of that conversation that I had last week. And, uh, you know, then I realized all of a sudden, that that's, it, it hit me, that's really what this summer has been all about, honestly. This whole series of turning points. It's also the constant message, honestly, of the prophets. And if you read the prophets, keep this in mind. Couple of, couple of keys to reading the prophets. One key is to really understand if you're reading Old Testament prophets, you need to know, this is one of the things that's been helpful for me in reading uh, studying Second Kings, you really need to know the historical context into which they're writing. It, it just makes it so much richer. The other thing about reading the prophets is it's n they're not complicated. The prophets are, are there's often some prose that will tell you a little bit of what's going on and then they will wail and woe is you and how bad are you and it's usually against God's people but sometimes against neighbors and then every now and then it's almost as if they're on this path through the woods and they're yelling and screaming at everybody around them and then they get to this open clearing and there's a vista and they can see out and they from that vantage point they back up and they give us hope and they offer grace and they tell us how to reconnect. And it's the same message over and over again. And have you noticed that? If you've been going to church for years, just you, you get the same message over and over again because it's not complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. So we're going to give that message this morning. You can package it in a hundred different ways. Today, we're going to steal the message from Isaiah. 
Now, you'll remember that Isaiah was a part of this history, but he was about 100 years earlier than the point that we're at right now. But still, we're going to steal from Isaiah because this is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. It just does a great job of giving us that high-level summary that I'm talking about. So, we're answering the question, you're off track, you feel a little bit like you've lost the narrative, you just don't feel that connection, or maybe it's worse than that, maybe you have made a mess of something. How do you get back? And Isaiah's going to answer that for us. He's just speaking devotionally from his heart this morning, but it really breaks out nicely into kind of a three-step process for us, and we're going to use it that way, even though he didn't write it that way. So we're going to look at Isaiah 55, 6 through 9, and this is going to be our jump-in text this morning. And let's do some spiritual aerobics. Again, out of reverence for God's Word, would you stand with me? Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9, and this is rich. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and our God, for he will, to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than yours and, and my ways higher than your ways. You may be seated. So did you get the three-step process? Step number one, seek the Lord. This is where it starts. While he may be found. And the implication there, and we talked about this last week, the implication there is that there is a time when seeking will do no good. There is a point of no return. God's patience does wear out. So call on him. Now this is Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry often signals itself by repeated themes. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Uh, Isaiah is really just trying to say the same thing. He's riffing on the same idea. This is the starting point for finding our way back for waking up our weary soul, for bringing our hearts back to life. This is the starting point for whatever ails us. Is there trouble in your marriage? Do you need direction? Do you feel empty? Wondering what your life means? You've made a terrible mess of something. Seek the Lord while he may be found. That's where it starts. Step number two, forsake your ways and turn to the Lord. This is a beautiful poetic description of repentance, which we've talked about a couple of times this summer. Remember that word repentance really originates, in its original meaning, it meant to just change direction. You're going this way, oops, I'm going the wrong way, I need to turn. Forsake your habits, forsake your pattern, forsake what got you here, and turn to the Lord. I'm reminded of uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14. Many of you will know this verse. My people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face. I want you to hear the context of this, because that's important. We'll start with verse 13. This is another point in Israel's history. This is when Solomon has just built the temple. He's dedicating, he's praying over the temple, and God says this to him. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. In other words, you're in a mess. And I have allowed devastating circumstances to come on your life because you're in a mess. You're off track. How do you get back? Well, if my people who are called by my name 
will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and will heal their land. It is the same message over and over. This is how we get back. This is how we get on track. Uh, as I thought about this, I, I was reminded of, uh, I, there, there are very few of you here this morning who will remember this, but years and years ago, early in Gateway's life, we were actually meeting, we started out meeting in, in uh, well actually we started out meeting in homes and then uh, daycare center, and then we met at an elementary school that was God awful in Herndon, and then we met in a really nice middle school in Herndon, and then we moved to uh, Mercer Middle School over here in Stone Ridge, and then uh, we built this facility. When we were meeting at the middle school in Herndon, one summer, uh, I was preaching through the book of Jeremiah, and I got to uh, Jeremiah 7, and if you were part of Gateway, and if you were here that Sunday, this was, you know, uh, 15 years ago probably, uh, you may well remember this. Uh, We had a a uh, young man who's no longer um, in this area, part of our congregation, and uh, he had been in ministry. And, you know, had, his life had gotten off track. And he was finding his way back, and Gateway was a part of that journey for him. Uh, he, sitting in the service, minding his own business, and I was preaching a, a sermon that was, I gotta say, it was uh, particularly poignant and kind of powerful. And it was on, uh, I think, Jeremiah 7. And it, Jeremiah is just riffing on the, the problems with false religion. And so, you know, I was wailing on this and talking about our hearts and gateway and, and suburban Americans and, and how we're often just kind of chasing, worshiping the wrong things. I come to the end and let us pray. And I started to pray. And I hear this guy stand up. And he says, I have a word from the Lord. And I have to tell you, real quick microsecond, my thought was, oh, good grief. How am I going to get us out of this? And he starts to speak. And I'm thinking, do I interrupt him? How do, you know, what in the world do I do? And then he says, I don't even know how to explain this spiritually. But he says, my servant has spoken and my people have not listened. And I felt like a fist rammed into my chest. All of a sudden, I wasn't the servant who had spoken. I was a people underneath this word. And I realized I had just said some really awesome stuff. <laughs> I mean, it was really good, honestly. And I hadn't listened. Have we listened? This summer... We've been constantly confronted with turning point and the need to turn toward him and the need to seek him and the consequences of not seeking him. Now, have we listened? And I don't mean has our crazy uncle who's riffing about weird right-wing politics or weird liberal politics on Facebook. I don't mean has he listened. I mean, have we listened? Have we, have we turned from our online addiction? Have we turned from our secret sins? 
And there are a few of you who know exactly what I mean. You're, you're, you have them. You nurse them. Have we turned from our longing to have more, to have it better? We've got to turn from our wicked ways. And then, thirdly, we have to recognize his awesome sovereignty. Uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Last week, we talked about the rhythm of surrender. Same thing, recognizing his awesome sovereignty. Seeking the Lord while he may be found, turn from our wicked ways and recognize his awesome sovereignty. So how do we get back on track? By way of review, let's talk about what we can't do to get back on track. Uh, some of the typical patterns for us. Number one, we can't sin our way back on track. That's often how we, we, we try to scheme. We try to sin our way back. Imagine that uh, you're married and your spouse catches a giant uh, payment on your credit card that's inappropriate. And if your response is something like, oh my gosh, those Russian hackers, I don't know how that happened. I'm, I'm going to chase this down. How, what? I'm, I'm going to go after them. I may not find them. They're in St. Petersburg somewhere, but they have, they've got my card number. You know, the way <clears throat> to get out of the hole is not to grab a shovel and dig deeper. Uh, you can't send your way back. Maybe more appropriate for us upper middle income suburbanites, you can't plan your way back. You know, how, how, what do I need to do? How do, how do I correct this? That, that's, not the right, that's not the right starting point. If you start with that, you're just going to end up in a different cul-de-sac. Pro-con list is often a great strategy. You know, I, when, I was, when I was taking that walk and I thought, have I ever prayed? I found myself developing a, a plan. And I, okay, here's, here, here's what I need to do. I found some comfort in the plan. Pro-con list is often a great strategy, but not when you're trying to get back, not when you've made a mess of things. You know what's striking? If you go back sometime before the summer's over, I would encourage you to do so. Read these last nine chapters of 2 Kings. There, is a, there are a couple of phrases that don't appear anywhere in this entire section of Scripture. Nowhere, not once in the entire section of Scripture do we read the phrases, they sought the Lord or they inquired of the Lord. Those phrases are used repeatedly throughout Judges, the time of Samuel, during the time of David, and even Solomon, but not here. In fact, in 2 Kings 21.6, we're told that Manasseh sought advice and guidance from spiritists and mediums. The word used in the NIV is consulted. It's the same word that's used of sought the Lord. He sought mediums. He even sacrificed his son in the fire to gain advice from the medium. Third thing we can't do is we can't work our way back. We can't be good enough. We can't get it right this time. We can't make it up. We, we, we can't work our way back. It doesn't work. I want you to imagine. I'm making this up. This is not, even, not only not a true story, it's not even a compilation of stories, so don't look around and, and wonder who this is about. But I want you to imagine a middle-aged couple comes to me and <clears throat> they've, they've, uh, 
they're in a mess. And um, let's say he's been unfaithful. And she's found out about it, and, and it's not good. And they've been coming to Gateway for a few weeks, and he's really begun to feel some conviction. And uh, I noticed one Sunday, you know, I'm up here wailing away, and I'm, I know he's moved, and he's even a bit tearful. And so they, they make an appointment. They come to see me. And in the office, he just begins to, he, he's starting to get it. And, and he's, he's opening up, and he says, you know, you, he turns to her, and he says, you don't even know the whole truth. And as he starts to tell the whole truth, it gets worse for her. But I, I realize, you know, something good is happening because when, in these situations, it often gets worse before it gets better. And, and then he just starts to spill and he starts to riff and a lot of it's good stuff. But then he starts to say things like, I'm just, I'm going to do better. I'm going to earn your trust. I want you to know that we need to bring the kids to church and I'm, we're going to do it every week. And I'm going to start giving, we're going to start giving a lot of money to Gateway. Now I'm tempted by the give a lot of money to Gateway bid. But if I've got God's mind, I'm going to say, stop, time out. Because he's going in the wrong direction. He's, he's engaging in a self-salvation project. And it never works. We can't save ourselves. That's why we need Jesus. We can't work our way back. The way back is to seek God, forsake our ways, and recognize his awesome sovereignty. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways, the evil person his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. To our God, for he will freely pardon him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up if they would. Uh, I don't know what part of that um, might have connected with you this morning, some small part or some giant theme, but I don't want us to, I don't want us to leave without some bit of wrestling with that. You know, I looked up this week what the, uh, currently the fastest computer in the world is. I don't even know if this is up to date. At this point, it changes every month or three. But currently, I think, the fastest computer in the world is the Fugaku computer in Japan. It performs at... Those of you who know computers, please forgive me. I know how ignorant I am. It's the only thing I, only thing I, can, thing I can say by way of excuse. It performs at a speed of 415 and a half petaflops. <laughs> I know. Just 15 years ago, they were about to break the, I had to look that up, so I, real, I, I learned that 15 years ago, just 15 years ago, they were about to break the petaflop barrier. That's the only place I found the definition for petaflop, which is a quadrillion calculations a second. 15 years ago, they were about to break the petaflop barrier. Now, the fastest computer in the world calculates at 415.5 petaflops. That's over a billion times faster than the average desktop computer. Billion with a B, that's a lot. The current fastest in the world performs 415 and a half times that speed, times the petaflop barrier. I don't, I don't even understand what I just said, but I know that's amazing. Here's what's amazing. Our brains operate 
on, on, on the next highest level. Although it's impossible to calculate preci precisely, it is postulated that the human brain operates at one exaflop. <laughs> just, just acknowledge, wow. Uh, that's equivalent to a billion, billion calculations per second. Per second! In 2014, some clever researchers in Japan tried to match the processing power in one second from 1% of the brain. Again, I don't understand. That doesn't sound like very much, but the world's fourth fastest supercomputer, the K computer, took 40 minutes to crunch the calculations for a single second of brain activity. Your brain, I mean, some of you aren't even that smart, and you're, some of us aren't even that smart, and your brain is pretty stinking amazing, and that doesn't compare to God's computing power. So let's just seek him. Let's forsake our ways. Let's acknowledge his awesome sovereignness. Let me pray. Lord, we want our hearts to be stirred and awakened and that's not something we do for ourselves. We want our way, what's happening in our life, to be tweaked and get back on track. Or for some of us, we've made a mess. And we need to get back. And that's not something we can do on our own. So we, um, we seek you while you can be found. You're here. You told us we're two or three and we're more than that. We're gathered. You'd be there. So we seek you. And for a few of us, we've actually thought of some ways that we need to forsake. Some things that we need to let go of. And we do acknowledge your sovereignty. You're awesome. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said,